You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to The Perch Pod. I'm your host, Jacob Shapiro. I'm the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives. Joining me on the show today is Abdul Rasul Divsalar. And for those of us who are lucky enough to call him our friend, we call him Farzam. Farzam is a program associate at the Middle East Direction Program of the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Studies at the European University Institute. Uh, There, he conducts research on Iran's security policy and threat perception dynamics in the Middle East. Uh, Before that, he was a senior fellow at the Institute for Middle East Strategic Studies in Tehran, and before that, the director of the National Resource and Development Program. Before that, he was actually a research fellow at the Center for Strategic Studies, which was then headed by current Iranian President Hassan Rouhani. We're going to go back in history and talk about how Iranian-U.S. relations have developed over the course of the past century, how that informs the difficult place um, that Iran and the U.S. find themselves in at the bilateral level today, and what the prospects are for the future. Hope you enjoy. A lot of people listening are Americans. Um, and I think it's a particularly weird time in the United States for perceptions of Iran because Iran and the United States have been at odds for decades now, but certainly under the Trump administration, things have gotten worse. Um, so I just wanted to ask sort of um, if you're commu- when you're communicating to Americans or when you want Americans to know about either the Iranian government or the Iranian people, what are some misconceptions that you you would want fixed? What is something that you would want to tell people that perhaps... Uh, they're being misinformed about or something they don't know about Iran? Well, a very good question to start. Actually, mm, unfortunately, we have a lot of misperceptions uh, when it comes both to Iranians' way of seeing Americans and Americans' way of seeing Iranians. Uh, However, I just want to uh, point to one main aspect here, I think, uh, worth mentioning is the fact that uh, Iranian society is very much uh, not anti-American. This is something that there, it's uh, uh, politically uh, advertised a lot in also Western media about the, uh, the, the real belief of Iranian society. Uh, I just want to make at, uh, some points here on that. Uh, of course, when I, was, uh, when I was back in Iran, I was also part of this bigger society, which is which, as I said, is not anti-American. Uh, but maybe the question is that, okay, why? Because we, we hear mostly that, all right, they, they burn the American flag in the streets in Tehran, and uh, there are some uh, very much anti-American sentiments shown in the, uh, in the media, the mainstream medias. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I think we really need to divide between the, the official uh, state picture and what is really happening uh, inside Iranian society. What is happening inside Iranian society is very much historically defined. It's not defined by the political regime or the Islamic Republic as we have right now. It's very much influenced by the Iranian history and the way that the people uh, are seeing the last 100, 150 years of, uh, of, of relation between the United States and, and, and Iran. Uh, you know, this is a characteristics of the countries with a very deep historical background. You know, the Iran is almost uh, 2,500 years that we have uh, the, the, the statehood, a kind of uh, uh, governance that uh, is quite broad in, in its uh, uh, 
very clear terms. So uh, this history plays a lot. That's why history rules the way the Iranians think. When it comes to the Iranian-American history, uh, it's interestingly very positive. You know, if you look uh, to the to the to the structure of the relation between Iran and U.S., you will see that the U.S. was never uh, a kind of a colonial power in Iran. Of course, Iran never become a uh, under colony of uh, of, of, of uh, major colonial power, but very much was influenced by these rivalries and colonial powers. But the U.S. impact on 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 the period of uh, Nineteenth uh, century and early twentieth century, which Iran was much weaker, was a very positive impact. It was started by educational help to the uh, to the Iranians. Then it continued by some uh, building hospitals and schools. Uh, but most importantly, it was uh, it was very much uh, the fact that uh, no we, we see no U.S. involvement in last in land loss in Iran. I mean, if you just compare it with the way that the British or the Russians behave with Iran, you you know that from the 19th century, Iran lost uh, several key lands. I mean, geographical lands. The Iranians lost uh, all the South Caucasus. If they lost the South Turkmenistan, the South Caucasus means countries like the current countries like uh, Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia. They lost the uh, most eastern part of Afghanistan. But in none of these losses of the lands, you can trace American involvement. It was just British and Russian involvement. This is quite critical because when you talk with the Iranians, uh, they they don't uh, necessarily see quite positive the way of a British policy or the Russian policy. But when it comes to Americans, that's not the case because there was no main involvement of, of Americans in loss of land. And also the fact that the Americans were very much had a developmental approach in Iran. I mean, uh, if you see some uh, some key figures that involved in 1911, 1912, like uh, Morgan Schuster, and then later in 1922, uh, Mila they were uh, they were historical figures that helped Iranian to build their developmental policies, uh, and also the fact that. Um, U.S. was very much in throughout the history of the relation with Iran was acting as a kind of a balancing power. Uh, it's very important to remain, remember the what has happened in 1946, uh, uh, actually during the Truman presidency, when uh, U.S. helped uh, Iranians to uh, to get rid of Soviet and Anglo Anglo and I mean British uh, invasion of the north and west of Iran. So all in all, these positive uh, policy making of Americans during the last 150 years has has caused Iranian society to see it very positively. So if I want to, it's quite important, I mean, to our American listeners, that they touch to this point that we need to make a division between uh, what state try to persuade and what really society thinks. So Islamic Republic, I mean, the part of the Islamic Republic which has their revolutionary history in the before 1979, uh, of course, they are very much anti-American because of the American support of the uh, Shah regime or previous regime, and the fact that the U.S. was also involved in in, in uh, some uh, crackdowns of these these at that time opposition movements. So these revolutionary forces are very much have anti-American sentiments. But when it comes to people, that's not the case. I think this is quite essential to remember. 
back to you. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, we have a lot to work with there. And um, hopefully by the end of this podcast, we will be able to answer some questions for listeners who might be confused because, you know, 100, 150 years ago, uh, you're talking about how the United States is a balancing power while Russia and Britain are basically trying to carve up Iran for themselves. And yet today we have the United States and Iran completely incapable of dealing with each other. And Russia seems to be a good friend of Iran. So we'll have to, hopefully in the course of this podcast, we can take our listeners from how we got to point A to point B and what we think is going to happen next. But I, I was gratified to hear that you you think that um, Iranian society is generally more pro-American than most people would accept, but I have to push back a little bit. Um, I mean, and you kind of alluded to it there at the end, but what about what happened to um, President Mossadegh? And what about the United States' role uh, in the coup that eventually overthrew Mossadegh? I think you're right that um, under the Truman administration after World War II, the United States did actually play a pretty positive and constructive role. But even as an American and as a student of American political history, um, the Eisenhower administration not only looked the other way, but I mean, that the CIA was involved in overthrowing a democratically elected president in Iran. And in some sense, the CIA took that blueprint and the United States took that blueprint and started overthrowing lots of different regimes because of their experience in Iran. So how do you how do you think about the United States role in that coup? Is Is everything that happened beforehand kind of enough to outweigh um, that quote unquote mistake or that unfortunate episode, um, or are, is it this kind of division between the revol the revolutionary forces think about 1953 and the coup, whereas, you know, other parts of Iranian society think about before then, H how do you balance that in your own mind? Uh, well, I agree with you that, uh, what has happened in 1953 is quite critical, uh, and influential, but I think, uh, it's a bit, uh, exaggerated the, the real impact of it in its current uh, U.S.-Iran relation. I mean, um, the, a broader view shows that we, before that incident, and particularly even until 1979, uh, we had more positive interactions than negative interactions. So uh, this means that, that that coup, which of course historically is quite important and, and, and was, uh, was a major cause of later uh, revolutionary forces use of it as a as a cause to make uh, uh, to persuade Iranian society to be anti-american the real social impact of it was not as much as other incidents that had happened I I want to touch to the Iran Iraq war I think that is more important than uh, what usually we think about 1953 that was because it was a real it was a real impact on Iranian society. Uh, and the role that U.S. played on that war was quite critical. You know that, uh, well, we had the the not a very good uh, times in 80s between U.S. and Iran, and uh, and uh, as a result, the the policy the the, the policy of uh, Reagan administration was very much in in creating a kind of uh, uh, a kind of atmosphere between Iran and Iraq that uh, at the end of the war. Uh, would not be any decisive decisive uh, victory by any side. So uh, this policy led to the fact that U.S. helped very much uh, uh, Iraqi side in providing intelligence. For example, we have the report of uh, 1986 that uh, U.S. provided with intelligence about uh, Iranian uh, troops positioning, and then later it led to the Iraqi chemical attack. And also the broader 
policy of the U.S. to lead uh, Iraq to, to, to have an access to some of its uh, critical arms, like the TOV um, anti-armor missile, which were quite critical on the battlefield at that time. So I think that the, the support that was, 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 uh, was given to the Iraq during the Iran-Iraq war was very much become so, a social factor to, to persuade the Iranian society that U.S. is not acting properly and it's, uh, it's against the, the interests of Iran. So, uh, because, you know, the, the real strategic impact of Iran-Iraq war is, is, is huge. I mean, that war is particularly the moment that uh, I always call it when Islamic Republic from an ideological power turns into a, a, a realist, pragmatic power that tries to understand the, the rules of the international international uh, international play and, and how the balance of the power is is really working. So that, I, I think these types of incidents, which really really uh, socialized the, the the problem of uh, U.S. policy. Are more powerful than what we have seen during the 1953. That's uh, that's depressing for me to hear because I mean, it, it, a lot of Americans think that United States foreign policy went wrong in the Middle East uh, in the Second Iraq War and with the way that that war was prosecuted. But it seems that uh, U.S. mistakes in Iraq go back even further than that, at least from your perspective, and, and lay the groundwork for some things. If I was to throw a hypothetical at you, um, if the United States had not played that role in the Iraq-Iran war from your perspective, do you think that U.S.-Iran relations would be much different today? Or do you think the revolutionary forces that took over in 79 were going to be anti-American in their rhetoric anyway, and that it was going to be hard to come to any kind of understanding with the United States? Uh, well, of course, I, I cannot uh, claim easily that if... Uh, that policy was not in place at that moment. Uh, we were in a completely different pattern of behavior between two countries. But I can say that uh, in a historical pattern, the history is very much created by these small movements. So if we delete that particular policy, for sure, uh, the intensity of the conflict and tension between the U.S. and Iran was much less. And a very um, great uh, uh, feed that that uh, revolutionary forces are these days using to persuade people that look the Americans are anti-Iranian. The Americans are are, are the are the forces that they they want to they want to uh, to 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 put harm on Iranian society. These types of propaganda were not being any more able. And and you should remember that these propaganda, of course, uh, they are not hundred percent working, but. Uh, uh, let me make my first comment more precise, that they are going to make change. You know, when we put everything together, I mean, like what we, uh, President Trump is doing these days by, by the sanctions, uh, the blind sanctions on a broad sense that impacts very much the society, these types of uh, historical incidents in a long term shapes the societies. And I think... Uh, that particular moment was one of the critical times that starts to persuade part of the society in Iran uh, that that U.S. is acting uh, not constructively and against Iran. <laughs> Let's zoom out a little bit, a, a little bit broader okay. from just U.S.-Iran relations. And I, I want to ask, do you think that that period, the Iran-Iraq uh, <laughs> Iran War from roughly 
1980. Do you think that changed Iranian foreign policy in general? I mean, one of the things that has always struck me is that, and you you alluded to Iran's history, when you go back into Iran's history, when it has been a sort of dominant Middle Eastern power or a dominant, dominant Central Asian power, or even in the Caucasus that you talked about, um, Iran was generally one of the less coercive powers in the region. It, it used the force of its political influence. It used the force of its, of its culture and of its um, diplomatic sophistication in order to uh, project influence over large parts of the Middle East, Central Asia, et cetera. And you still see some of that influence today. Um, Iran post-1979 seems to have a very, very different approach to Iranian grand strategy, to how to achieve Iran's interests in the world. Um, do you locate that change? Do you, first of all, do you think that that sort of description is right? And do you locate that change in the Iran-Iraq war, or is there something going on there that I'm missing? Uh, yes, it's correct, partly. And uh, the role of Iran-Iraq war is a, is a kind of a turning point. Uh, look, the, most of the people who are right now ruling Iran uh, in IRGC, in different institutions, are the veterans of the war of Iran-Iraq. That, that is a critical historical moment for Iran from the sense that it led the people inside the political system to understand that uh, they should be self-relied if they want to to keep uh, the country, the borders of the country, and uh, not losing land. You should remember that uh, Iran is a country that since the uh, early nine, uh, 19th century, it was just losing land. So we were in a course of a 200 years of losing land. So, uh, and, and the reason that why we were losing land was very much defined in the fact that we are not powerful enough. We we are we have we don't have a very uh, broad and uh, and decisive uh, military doctrine that provides a kind of protection to the geography. So Iran Iraq War was very much fortified and cemented this idea from the sense that Iran was not able uh, was not uh, did not have any access to the arms in the international market. So if you just Look how Iranians during the Iran-Iraq War uh, received arms. It's quite uh, fascinating. It was all, and the, most of it was during the in the black market, so by some clandestine operations. It was happening while Iraq was very much officially accessed to uh, to the arms. And the fact that, uh, as you know, that uh, during the Iran-Iraq War, the chemical weapons was most extensively used to, during the 20th century against Iranians, and the fact that uh, the Iranian military personnel were hugely uh, infected. By, I mean, uh, uh, were, were 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 in front lines, uh, seeing the chemical weapons. Give this idea to the strategists that the only way to to remain and survive is to create a kind of a defensive posture that could uh, that is independent from the from the other international uh, help. So that's the. The, the, the point that really the Iranian current, as you say, a bit more offensive, um, I, I put it maybe a, a more precise word, is offensive deterrence, because it, in, in its nature, it is deterrent. It, it tries to protect from any foreign attack. But in arriving to that point, it may give itself the possibility of using offensive measures to prevent that, that, uh, that attack. So... Uh, 
that's correct. I mean, that's that that is the moment that Iran shifts to the new way of thinking and very much created the way he was thinking also about its nuclear program, its missile program. All of it is very much shaped. If you uh, we we move a bit forward during the nineties uh, and uh, and later early two thousand, we will see that Iranian uh, nuclear program and its missile program very much has its logic back to the Iran Iraq war. Yeah, I, I'm glad you said that. And we'll get back to Iraq in a second. But you 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 use the phrase offensive deterrence, and I think that's exactly right when you think about Iran's missile program. But a nuclear weapon is not offensive deterrence, is it? That's more of a defensive deterrence or a passive deterrence. Or do you think that I- Iran actually thought of using nuclear weapons in some way? I, talk a little bit to me about what the logic of a nuclear weapons program is in the context of this offensive deterrence um, model, basically, that you spoke about. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. You see, uh, the the nuclear intent of Iran, I mean, like other countries, is defined uh, very much by some variables, like uh, the strategic calculus of, of security environment. I mean, uh, this means the nuclear intent is, is not a fixed issue. It changes according to realities of threat perception, how countries' uh, uh, security deficit is, is formed. And the intensity of international rivalries or military doctrines and so on. So, and, and particularly the balance of power, of course. So, I want to say that also Iran, in this framework of, uh, of, of variables, during the 90s, tried to define, uh, to arrive to this calculation that uh, maybe the, uh, the way to, um, to, to, to protect itself from a possible uh, external attack is to have a kind of a bomb. So I, I think that the Iranian nuclear policy is very much divided in two separate phases. The phase of uh, the first phase, which very much is a time that Iran is looking for a bomb, and it uh, starts from the late 90s until the early 2000s, where the nuclear intent is, 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 is to have the bomb, mostly due to the, the major lag in conventional military capability. And, uh, and fear of war with U.S. or Iraq. You know, that's that lack of the conventional forces is the key here. I mean, the fact that Iranian military forces was very much not capable to defend, that military doctrine was not able. So Iran moved toward more unconventional forces of uh, uncon- unconventional doctrines like the nuclear doctrine in order to, to protect itself. But when you... Uh, you arrive to the second part or second phase of Iranian uh, nuclear uh, posture or nuclear intent, you will see that because of a shift or a change in Iranian military capability, uh, I think the whole picture changes. Um, I mean, after revealing that uh, it was around 2003, as we know, that the uh, Iranian nuclear program was revealed, uh, you will see uh, an adjustment in Iran's missile program. Uh, I mean, Iran's doctrine shifts to be uh, constructed based on massive second strike and attritional war, using a kind of a mixture of geography plus uh, physical depth to create it. So Iranians used, to put it more simpler, the Iranians assumed that if they can create a kind of a capability, either it's missile or uh, geography moving outside their borders, to, to be able to have a second strike. And then if someone, an, a, a, a kind of adversary, intends or tries to get inside their geography, create if they can uh, create a kind of attritional warfare, 
this mixture of attrition and uh, massive second strike could could be deter deterrent and, and prevent an aggressor from moving in. So uh, here you, you will see some major advancements in military uh, hardware, particularly in the missile program. You know, when the Iranian missile program becomes more accurate, becomes uh, abundant in the numbers of productions and the type of the warheads that they are using, the range, and all these technical characteristics, if you, if you see, you will realize to a very interesting point. The fact is that Iran arrived to the capability that could have a second strike quite precisely, a kind of a precision-guided attack to where it wants, uh, and this way create a kind of a military, real military impact on its possible uh, adversary. Uh, this, in, in, sen- in real sense, um, is useful until the adversaries does not have a real possibility of defense. What I want to say is that, in this sense, the logic of uh, having a nuclear bomb is not anymore there. So, in the second phase, which we are right now in that phase, actually, uh, the Iranian policy is very much shifted toward the fact that let's keep the technology and let's have the, the know-how of how arrive to the bomb, but let's not have it because we don't need it. The conventional forces is creating the type of deterrence, the type of offensive deterrence, as I said. So there is no need. And the costs of having nuclear bomb is much more than that. And here exactly we arrive to the the, the argument of the JCPOA and so on, and uh, uh, why President Trump's decision to leave the the JCPOA was a wrong decision because it it was it was it was a short term decision, not seeing the the real impact of the JCPOA in in softening the security environment around around Iran and and erasing the logic of Iranians to arrive to the bomb. I, I think that's a good point, but I, I would also have to ask, uh, to a certain extent, it's true. And I mean, the I mean, U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East has been short-sighted for a while. That's not just the purview of President Trump. I mean, I think we can go back to multiple administrations and we've had short-term decisions made. Um, but I, I've even said before that I, I thought withdrawing from the JCPOA, which is the Iran nuclear deal, uh, in the way that the United States did was probably not productive and, and and not productive, not from the sense of a right or wrong issue, but that it didn't create um, the kind of or didn't help the United States succeed in its foreign policy objectives. That said, you talked about the JCPOA creating a softer sort of security environment for Iran. And there I have to ask, well, but then why was Iran sort of accelerating its missile testing program right after it was signing? And why was Iran um, kind of pushing with its proxies into Iraq, into areas that it must have known that the United States was not going to be happy that Iran was backing various proxies or challenging the stability of the Iraqi regime. I think the most um, the most compelling critics of the JCPOA are not the ones who reflexively just wanted to tear up the deal, but are the ones who say, yes, the JCPOA could have been a good deal, but it didn't go far enough. And just look at what Iran started doing right after it signed it. It started doing things that challenged U.S. interests in the region. So how do you think that, does that reflect some kind of inner political struggle within Iran to define Iranian foreign policy? Do you think that that reading of Iranian intentions in Iraq is unfair? Kind of talk to me about how you would kind of work through Iran's behavior after the JCPOA was signed. 
Uh, yeah, you know, you touch a very good point. The fact that it, it is partly related to the fact uh, that uh, there are internal uh, conflict and uh, lack of uh, cohesion between policies inside the different institutions of, uh, of the Islamic Republic. But at the same time, I, I, I see it more related to some strategic calculus of, of, uh, of Islamic Republic. Look, the, the, the logic is quite important. I want to stress to the fact that we, we need to answer why Iran needs a bomb. Okay, I mean, what, when it's the time that Iran may, may, may decide to, to create a bomb? It's the time when it feels its current military uh, capability is not able to, to uh, provide deterrence. What is the point is that the Iranian deterrence strategy right now is very much is based on its missile program. So asking Iranians to, uh, to reduce the intensity of their missile program, while at the same time you're not giving the bomb to them, leave the, the decision makers in Tehran without any option. So either they should have a kind of a tool to defend or they should go for the surrender in, their, in the security environment, which at the same time you have... Uh, intense rivalries with uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel. So the solution is, is if, if you go back to the JCPOA, the solution was very much inside JCPOA. The solution was that uh, we tried to erase the rationale behind Iranians to go after the bomb. What is the rationale? The rationale is that if you, after a, a kind of a period of a five years of a trust building, we led Iranians to... to increase their capacity in conventional arms and conventional deterrence, which is the 2020, the time that their arms embargo on Iran would be lifted. And that's a critical time because that will lead Iranians to the, or to the conclusion that they don't essentially need any nuclear bomb to keep the, 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 the actually the deterrence. But, uh, that, that's that's critical. Your question: the fact that why exactly after that moment Iran start to to uh, to go in Iraq and in Israel, close to the Israeli borders in 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 Syria, uh, I very much see it a kind of uh, kind of attempt to restructure the Iranian military doctrine. The restructure you you, you should uh, I mean we need to remember that uh, Iran is very is a is a country. I mean the Islamic Republic. Is a part is a kind of a regime that is very much uh, ruled by its fears and its threats. It's a it's a kind of a political system that um, that is very much uh, has a type of uh, overextended threat perception. It sees most of its uh, dynamics around itself as a sort of threat, and some of these threats are real. For example, if you see the idea of the Israeli Defense Force doctrine, you will see that. The IDF's military doctrine is based on the deepest strike uh, preventive strategy. It means that for Israel, it's possible to use the nuclear bomb in a case that uh, it's needed, and in a case that the conventional arms are not able to to uh, to be useful or to be uh, to be deterrent. So in this case, we arrive to a very complex situation. I mean, it's not that easy to say, "All right, we we ask the nation states." to leave one arms which they perceive it have a kind of a deterrence power while at the same time block them and do not provide them with the with the defensive measures to protect themselves so what is the solution i mean the, i mean the solution uh, is is quite simple but at the same time complex it's simple because it tells you that 
okay, uh, you need to provide, you need to improve the conventional power of the of the regimes, like the Iranians. You give them the normal aircrafts. You you give them you 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 lift the arm embargo so they can buy whatever they need, and then you put a very strict regulatory measures to keep the the the, the possibility of 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 uh, of, uh, of arriving to any sort of a militarized nuclear nuclear uh, program. So this was exactly the solution that uh, JCPOA was following. And JCPOA was a first step. That's why I, I think that that critic was was not really um, was not really logical. I mean, we tried to uh, link a tactical move of IRGC, which, as you said, was a uh, was a firing of a missile after it. Uh, to a broader strategic reasoning behind countries to decide for the bomb. That's that's um, uh, that's not helpful. I mean, that, it arrives us to the situation that we are right now. In order to start, solve the situation, I think we need to erase the rationale behind the states uh, in their decision to go for the bomb. I think you're exactly right with what you said at the end, which is that the JCPOA was really at its core a trust-building exercise. Um, so much mistrust had developed between the United States and Iran that it was a way for both sides to at least start to engage each other in a more pragmatic and a more um, respectful, for lack of a better word, term, because there hadn't been a whole lot of communication between both sides. Um, I think you also alluded correctly to the fact that it, it was a it was weakly supported in the United States. And I think it was all, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was weakly supported in Iran. I think president Rouhani, That's correct. Sort of, yeah. he had to go out on a limb in the same way that president Obama did. So when um, significant opposition came from both in the United States political system and the Iranian political system, correct. Uh, the, yeah. de- the deal itself was not strong enough, but I want to go back to what you said about, um, I love this phrase, uh, overextended threat perception. Sounds to me like a fancy phrase for paranoia. And here in the United States and in other places in the Middle East, certainly it's there. I worry that um, by erasing the rationale for a nuclear weapon, you create the rationale for Iran to be much more aggressive, like you said, in Iraq and in Lebanon, which is not an ideal outcome for the United States. Um, it certainly doesn't make sense to me that Iran is putting troops in Syria uh, to, to worry about a threat from Israel, which is a country with 8 million people and which militarily can't actually hit Iran if it wants to in any meaningful way. Um, if it could, I think Israel would have taken out the Iran- uh, Iranian nuclear weapons program. I think it lacked the capability to do so. It needed support from a power like the United States to even consider doing so, and without that support was not willing to go there. So it, it strikes me that, um, you know, h- how do you deal with that? How do you give Iran the confidence that it needs in order to stop pursuing a, a, a nuclear weapon, but also the confidence that it needs not to be pushing into Iraq, into Syria, onto the borders with Israel, into these places where it was going to run afoul of the United States, whether under President Trump or under a Clinton administration? Yeah, that's a very good question. Actually, it's uh, it's a core of the problem. Uh, part of it is, um, I agree, that goes back to the ambitions that, of course, uh, we are talking about the regional power. So, it, of course, it is ambitious to to be more powerful, to 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 uh, let's say to maximize its uh, its power throughout the region. That's part of the problem, of course. Uh, but some, 
I want to go back to my phrase before that I said the the deep strike uh, um, preventive strategy of Israel. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we if we, we put it in a in a you you're right that Israel is not uh, as a, as a single country able to to necessarily defeat their their Iran in a in a real war without using uh, non conventional measures, but. If you go back, for example, in 2011 and 2012 and and Netanyahu's uh, lobbying for a kind of a military campaign against Iran, you will see that that threat toward the Iranian regime is very much serious. It is uh, it is very much based on their real ground evidence and based on the fact that Israel have both the means and also have the intentions and politically have acted to, to act on it. To, to, to attack. You, you will uh, remember that Israel uh, attacked Iraq and Syria, both the nuclear facilities being attacked during the 80s. So, uh, and with the past experience of these attacks, uh, you cannot expect international players just to, just to rely on a, on a document on, on, a, on international scales, and then we will see that it's not so also reliable. Uh, to leave all the defensive measures and to say, okay, we, we made it and that's enough. So uh, this is the point. I mean, we, uh, I think very much, we sometimes need to go back to very basic uh, terms in international relation like the balance of power. I think that's quite critical. I mean, still in the context of Middle East, these types of terms are working. How we can create a, a balance between the states. So in a sense that the costs are more than the benefits of, of making any offensive strategy. Uh, I think uh, the JCPOA could have been complemented by normalization of Iran if it was going successfully. Of course, you said that both uh, the, both sides, there were not enough political support. I agree with that. But at the same time, if internationally it was going to be supported by normalization of Iran, the, the benefits of the Islamic Republic uh, out of its uh, uh, its less offensive regional strategy, if it was given the proof, I think that was the main reason to convince uh, the people inside uh, inside Iran to to back and uh, and back to their borders uh, and and reduce their offensive strategy in in Syria. And in Iraq, I very much see it as a real sense of a fear, uh, as a real because you know uh, if you uh, let let me let me put it in a opposite side. If you just put yourself uh, on the shoes of uh, uh, the the defense planners who are working inside uh, the Ministry of Defense in Iran, uh, and then you ask them, okay, if you don't have the missiles and also you don't have the geography close to the Israel. How you're possibly going to attack to the preemptive strikes? You have no no way to to do that. You have no you have no air force. You have no uh, real possibility of offense. So uh, people go for some solution. I think uh, again I get back to my previous word. We need to respond for the escalation to the rationale behind offensive behaviors. I think the offensive behavior of Iranian and also the offensive behavior of, of other regional players like the Saudi Arabia and Yemen, there are some clear rationals behind it. That rational is very much run by their fears, run, their, run by their threats of losing the land, losing their, their position, losing their, uh, their, their international 
uh, international uh, recognition, whatever they have, and also, of course, losing their, uh, their power inside their countries. So if we can respond to these real uh, feasible issues, then we can arrive to a package of de-escalation between U.S. and Iran. Otherwise, through adding more, you know, it's exactly the core problem with the, uh, the current administration maximum pressure plan. That's The plan is completely, I mean, this maximum pressure is completely acting opposite. It is adding to the threats that the Islamic Republic is offensively reacting to. So when you add more to the threats, the possibility of more offensive reaction by the player will increase. I agree. And I think it's so important, even if people disagree with the rationale that you're laying out to understand what that Iranian rationale is. I, I, it, it leads me to another question, though, which is, I mean, you, you mentioned Israeli strikes on nuclear programs in Syria and in Iraq. Uh, Iran is further away than, than Syria and Iraq. The Israeli Air Force would have a very difficult time doing that in any meaningful sense. But you talked about sort of you know, Israel as a potential threat with Syria and Lebanon. You talked, you alluded to Saudi Arabia and the ongoing proxy war in Yemen there between Saudi, Saudi Arabia and Iran. But two questions that we haven't talked about and two questions that I would think would figure more prominently in Iranian fears would be Turkey and Russia. Um, Russia, which, as you alluded to, uh, carved up Iran and took over large swaths of places that were under Iranian influence. I'm thinking about Central Asia, the Caucasus, all these other places, and is is playing a very delicate game in the Middle East for its own interests. And Turkey, which, you know, when, when you had the Ottoman Empire was sort of a natural balancing act to the Iranian empires that were existing around that time, and which um, is arguably the biggest opponent to the Assad regime, which has its military forces on the ground in Syria that is working uh, you know, cross purposes to what Iran wants. You've also got Turkey messing around in northern Iraq because they feel that the Kurdish issue is in their purview as well. Um, why the focus on Israel and Saudi Arabia, which if I'm as an as an outside observer, those are lesser threats than Turkey or Russia, whereas Russia, Iran is cozying up to and Turkey seems that uh, Iran is either not willing to talk about the threat or is not doing things to address it. So talk to me about why Israel, Saudi Arabia, and and talk to me about Iran's approach to Russia and Turkey in that context. Yeah, a good question. Actually, uh, I will start first with the Russians. I mean, uh, it's correct that historically Russia uh, is not perceived positively inside Iranian society, uh, but that's a different story when it comes to the Iranian state. It's exactly opposite what we see in uh, how Iranian state see the U.S. and society see and with what we see in the Russian case. I mean, uh, Iranian people doesn't, doesn't have a positive history of Russian intervention in Iranian affairs, uh, but the state right now is very much having shared threat perception with the Russians. Uh, I can say that, uh, what is that shared threat perception? Look, uh, you know, international players very much are seeking for recognition. They want, they want inter- international recognition. They want to be recognized as a as a as a right uh, power in that particular geography. This is very much run by their self image. You know, the, the Russian self image is always a, a country as a great power, or if it's not a superpower, at least it is a great power globally and iran self-image is very much based on a country with a regional power that have any large influences over its geography both of these countries are not 
uh, receiving this self-image through the international relations. So here there is a common interest. I mean, the lack of recognition that they want from international uh, system led them to naturally get close to each other. So, and, and they find some common threat perceptions between each other that, that let them, despite their, the fact that they are not naturally allied, to become a kind, to create a kind of a partnership. I cannot call it a strategic partnership, but a kind of a strategic uh, convergence or security convergence that they that can help them to 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 defeat or to to suppress these types of threats that they are uh, feeling. So, uh, very much, I see the relation between Russia and Iran, a kind of a threat-based relation. Both of these states are insecure states. They they are they are full with feelings of insecurity. So this uh, common construct led them to have a good uh, joint sharing of, um, of, 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 of policies and distribution of uh, responsibilities in areas like uh, in Syria, where you know they have a mutual dependencies to each other while Iranian is providing the ground force and Russians are on the sky. And at the same time, the kind of uh, other types of uh, threats that you may see, for example, in uh, in uh, in Central Asia, the the, the jihadist uh, Sunni jihadist threat is is both a threat to Iran and and, and to and to Russia. So these types of, uh, of 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 threats are making that alliances uh, a real factor, and we need to remember also the fact that these two players are very much uh, aligned by their. Their, their natural tendency to reconstruct uh, the international system in order to be recognized, as I said. So it's also based on the threat and it's also based on the joint project of reconstructing reconstructing the, the international relation. Of course, if I want to uh, be more exact, I may say that both Iran and Russia are very much status quo powers, but at some levels they, they want revisions I, I don't like I, I don't want to call them a revisionist powers because I, I don't see it that way I think they are very much a status quo powers but at the same time they want a kind of a, a revisiting of international system to to let them be what they see themselves as a power and as a regional or a global power the case of Turkey is very much different I mean uh, you know the the type of regimes that we like the Islamic Republic very much need uh, a kind of uh, uh, threat from outside that everyone can uh, can can be uh, can come under the flag or, and and uh, and share that that threat as a reason to have a more cohesive society to to solve those uh, distrust between state and society. I think uh, Israel is a very good choice for Islamic Republic to to play that that role. But Turkey, it's not. Turkey is a Muslim country. Uh, there are lots of uh, cultural and and common uh, common cultural issues between the two countries. So this makes it much more softer as what it as what you uh, described that uh, uh, power rivalries that may happen between Turkey and and Iran. And at the same time, we need to remember that. Anyway, these two are, are close neighbors and very much economically, the, the microeconomic that is happening between the borders of the two sides is quite critical for, for what they're uh, doing as, a, as their grand policy. And at the same time, Turkey and Iran are also facing with, uh, with 
joint threats. On the top is the Kurdish threat that the both country are suffering from the fact that um, the Kurdish minority are asking for uh, for a, a possible plans of uh, resurgence plans that may lead to a, a separate country, so it means a loss of land. And that's why it, it brings them together in, a, in, in a countering that threat of, of, of Kurdish independency movements. That's all well and good, but don't you think that long-term what Turkey is doing right now threatens Iran's uh, ambitions in the region? I mean, Turkey very clearly wants to be the regional power, not just of the Middle East, but the Mediterranean, and wants to be the head of a coalition of Sunni powers. Um, does that, I mean, accepting all the things that you said they might have in common, is Turkey not a much more serious threat to Iran's interests than, say, in Israel or a Saudi Arabia? Uh, you know, I don't see it that way uh, because that that part of the common cultural aspect, I mean, uh, the fact that both countries are, are very much... Uh, uh, sharing a, a big historical uh, historical uh, similarities and 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 long term long time of of historical relations and particularly you need to remember that Iran has a large uh, minority of Azeri or Turk people inside. So these are all this, those softening uh, elements that led them not to see each other as a as a real threat that uh, in, in future may may cause a kind of a problem. I, I think for, for Iran, Turkey is not um, is considered is not considered at all the kind of a real threat that it should be it should be uh, countered. We've kind of danced around the issue of the IRGC, and I think this talk about culture and ideology uh, kind of uh, is a nice segue and brings the point home because I think. For the United States, ironically enough, the problem with Iran is much more ideological than it is strategic. And if you had a different political regime in Iran, I think you would see a friendlier United States. Um, the, max, the, the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign, whether we agree with it or disagree with it, is certainly about changing the regime's character in Iran. They don't like the regime. And the part of the regime they don't like, because Iran is obviously a very complex country and a very complex political system is they don't like the IRGC. They don't like the conservative religious components of the society. They don't like the sort of thuggish theocratic um, elements inside of the Iranian political system that are there alongside a real attempt to have some attempt at democracy, uh, to have some attempt at a free market, to have some economic pragmatism and this, that, or the other thing. How do you well, let me go back for a second. I always try and, and read the tea leaves in Iran uh, as, a, as a political competition between those sort of hardliners, for lack of a, a better word. So that's the IRGC, um, the Ayatollahs, the, the religious political element of the society. And then someone like a President Rouhani, somebody who is coming from um, a political tradition that tries to separate the revolution from the actual day-to-day -day functioning of the country and especially the economy, and who has taken huge steps to try and get the IRGC out of the uh, out of economic influence inside of Iran itself, uh, with mixed levels of success. So, do you think that that is too simplistic a way of looking at Iran's political system? Do you think there is a real competition for power in the political system where one side might emerge victorious over the other? Or is it just a, a difference of opinion and that Iran as a political system is more coherent than I'm giving it credit for 
and that someone like a Rouhani can disagree with an IRGC commander. And sure, they can disagree, but it's not a big deal. How would you um, tell an American or anybody on the outside to think about how that political competition is playing out in Iran and how that affects Iran's foreign policy? Yeah, I get your point. It's a very, I mean, very critical and important question. Uh, but for answering that, I would like to first uh, touch the point that uh, what is the nature of Islamic Republic? I mean, it's uh, we need to to know what is the nature of this type, this regime, in order to be able to correctly answer your question. I mean, I think there is a big mis- misunderstanding here. The fact is that Islamic Republic is not a totalitarian nor authoritarian regime. It's what I call it uh, a limited access order system. It's a word that I use from Douglas North. But let me explain why. First, it's not totalitarian because uh, there is no mass party. I mean, in Iran, you don't have a mass party. You, you, there's, no, there's no concerted uh, or concentrated power that, that controls everything. And, and there is no limited capacity to, and there is, sorry, a limited capacity to, to remove the top leader. But it's not at the same time authoritarian because um, there are not well-defined and strict limits of actions and also no guiding ideology. I mean, you're right that the Islamic Republic is an ideological uh, regime, but at the same time, uh, it is not. It is very much a pragmatic and and, and realist pursuing a realist view to the international world. So it's not authoritarian because it broadly uh, shows rational and, and, and it's predictive in its behavior. So what is what I mean by the, it's important to, to, to get this point to answer this question, that what is limited access order? I mean, uh, you know, the Islamic Republic is a kind of a system that is based on granting, uh, you know, limited number of political elites inside the system, a privileged control over the uh, the parts of the country's resources and the rents inside the system. So this access to the, uh, I mean, this political uh, elite who have uh, access to the resources are conditionally accessed if they accept the, 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 the rules of the game. What is the rules of the game? It's acceptance of the rule of the clergy, what we foresee we call it Velayat al So uh, unless you accept this, you are relatively uh, uh, given the access or the possibility to compete rather freely inside the, the political system. So this is quite critical. The construct of, of political competition it, uh, that it takes in place inside Iran uh, is is, is a sort of a competition for power sharing, for distribution of resources, for the way or models of uh, governance, and, and so on. So um, here is the key point. The key point is that these competitions are not, uh, are not type of political rivalries that asks for structural reforms or, or seek violence behavior inside their political competition because the benefit of all the players who are inside is to keep the system that's the core i mean when you see from outside if you do not get this point that those players who are who are competing inside the islamic republics either they are reformist or they are hardliners or they are irgc or whatever you may call them they are not uh, the one who ask for a natural structural change inside the system 
they are because their benefit is is to maintaining of the system. So this means that uh, the, the 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 common interest when it's the same, uh, the 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 final answer is not so different. I mean, the the type of uh, rivalry that is happening between the political actors uh, is not so much defining. Uh, the the nature of the regime. You have that political rivalry, but at the same time, that political rivalry is essential to keep the uh, keep the the regime. And when it's uh, faced with the outside threat, all the political uh, players come together in order to respond to that threat because the interest of everyone is to keeping the system. So th- there is this misunderstanding sometimes from outside that, okay, look, the IRGC and the hardliners are fighting with the reformists, and now it's the time that there is going to be happen something inside Iran. That's completely misunderstanding and misreading of what is happening. That particular limited access uh, structure is defining a shared interest between all political parties. And all political parties' shared interest is 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 uh, secured and guaranteed when the regime is is functioning well and it's there. So that's why when the regime is facing with external threat, everyone comes together and try to define a broader picture of the of the of the system. Yeah, I think I have to disagree with you on whether it's an authoritarian regime or not. Although that might be semantics between us. I mean, it, it seems pretty clear to me that the Iranian system has elements of authoritarianism in it. But I wonder if I could just push you on one of the points. I, yeah, I take your point. By the way, I agree with you. Uh, just let me compliment on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am saying that it, you, it, it's a very uh, combined system. You, by just the totalitarian words, or authoritarian, or uh, or a kind of. Uh, uh, religiously ruled system, you you cannot understand Islamic Republic because it's not exactly a totalitarian. Based on totalitarian theories or conception, you miss many of the points. I mean, when I when I touch the point of Douglas North modeling of limited access order, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have the the system doesn't have the totalitarian behaviors. It has the totalitarian behaviors, and it has also some behaviors which are very much not totalitarian, which you cannot explain that. So that's why it makes it, it makes it a bit more complex. Yeah, I can take that. It's, it's certainly a mix of different things. Um, uh, I, I, can, I can go with you there. I, I would ask, though, in my understanding of it, the IRGC was never supposed to play such a major role in the economy. And it feels like um, sort of in part because of the Iran, uh, uh, the economic destruction of the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s, the IRGC became very involved in the domestic economy, which that was not their purpose. Their purpose was to guard the revolution, not to sort of become a version of the Egyptian military, for instance, where the Egyptian military both defends Egypt, but also controls the entire industrial complex, the entire economic system. It feels to me like there is some kind of revisionism happening there where the IRGC is trying to extend and assert its control over the Iranian economy in a way that the government might not like. I mean, I think um, President Ahmadinejad sort of helped that forward. It feels like President Rouhani is rolling that back. Do you think that's fair or do you think even there I'm, I'm simplifying things too much? No, I agree with that. I mean, um, I, I think it's uh, partly correct because, you know, under pressure, um, what is happening, the beha- as, I, as I said, with that modeling of, of the nature of the regime, uh, when the regime is faced with more threat, it is becoming more functional to, to protect itself. One of the 
one of the restructurings that it needs to to do is the fact that it 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 have to become more unified if from inside so its core will become more powerful what is made of its core is that hardliner irgc nature uh, like uh, people so and we need at the same time remember that a big part of Iranian economy is controlled by RGC and the part of the economy which is not necessarily under control of government. So when the government earnings are, are declining due to U.S. sanctions, naturally what is happening is two trends. The first trend is a political one, which uh, which is creating a kind of, as I said, uh, a, a unify, unifying core that tends to tends to erase those parts of the uh, elites who are not necessarily uh, constructive in current uh, environments, so they tend to delete them, like what we see in the parliamentary election, which was a big example. In the parliamentary election, legitimacy of uh, of, of, of the, the vote was not important for the people inside the regime. They were, it was important for them to bring some sort of people inside uh, the parliament that creates more unification inside the system. So one aspect under a huge pressure environment is to make that core more unified. The other aspect is the fact that uh, during all these years, there are lots of resources accumulated in the um, IRGC control or other organizations behind the Supreme Leader. So what they are trying to do while the government income and earning is reduced is to bring Part of those resources into the economy and into the uh, into the functioning level of the state in order to keep it going. So this naturally means that the the role of the IRGC and those hardliner uh, people who are controlling those assets and those resources in the in the in, in the future will in, will will become more. This is exactly opposite to what the real intention of U.S. policy was. The policy was. To reduce the the the, uh, the level of involvement of IRGC, the level of uh, of influence and influence of IRGC on Iranian foreign policy, but what is happening on the ground naturally is different because, as I said, the system and and it's interesting that uh, because at the same time even those reformists, I mean, uh, are benefiting from from the whole regime. They are not going to violently oppose. Uh, uh, showing this content violently or asking their supporters in the street to come to the street against these restructurings. Because at the end of the day, they are going to take a piece of this, uh, this uh, bigger cake. So these two trends, as I said, is, uh, is, 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 uh, is, is, is happening and means the increased role of the hardliner and IRGC members in the future of Iranian foreign policy. Makes sense. All right. You, you've spent a lot of time with us and I, I don't want to abuse your time. So let me just ask you one question to, to get oh, us out of here. On. <laughs> but um, so you recently you, you wrote an article right after uh, the United States assassinated Qasem Soleimani. And we don't we can do a whole nother podcast on that specific incident if we want some other time. But yeah, right sure. afterwards, you wrote, and I'm going to quote you here. Current temporary reduction in tensions is not sustain is not sustainable. Either it will evolve into a war or Tehran and Washington should accept um, reducing their irreconcilable positions and creating breathing space for diplomatic solutions. The question I want to close out on, because we haven't mentioned it at all yet, um, th that's a fairly gloomy view that either there's going to be war um, 
or there's going to be sort of space for diplomatic solutions. Uh, and I don't think that the latter one is, there's a very good chance of that. Where does the situation stand as of today? And do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic changes that trajectory at all? Has it put a pause on tensions? Um, is it accelerating tensions? Could it create a, an opening for some kind of diplomatic engagement? Are we just kind of hurtling towards another Soleimani incident or another kind of low-level military incident? Where, where do you see Iran-U.S. relations today and also in the context of COVID-19? Uh, well, unfortunately, I'm not so positive on the future outcomes, but uh, I hope that I'm wrong. I think that uh, both sides are very much using the spill, I mean, trying or viewing uh, the spillovers of the, the coronavirus as, as, a, as a new means, as a new tools to reinforce their current, uh, you know, confrontational uh, strategies. So uh, it, it is seen as a kind of uh, a measure that uh, can, or a tool that can re reinforce or can, uh, let's say, uh, can make their existing uh, policies more efficient and more and more productive. So uh, in, in the sense of the Trump administration, for example, they are counting on the fact that probably the Iranian economy will will become bankrupt and a big meltdown, the unemployment rate and uh, and the huge uh, recession that we will see after the, because of the, the coronavirus, will let people come back on the streets and oppositions uh, and so on, and the regime will change, will be forced to change its policy. Uh, we, this is happening at the same time that Iran has, a, I mean, the Islamic Republic is very much and a big uh, uh, legitimacy crisis. So, the, the, the Trump administration is very much counting on this, on this uh, assumption, and that's why they are rejecting the calls, international calls for removing the sanctions. And the other side, Iranians are also seeing this situation as a very good moment to, to become more resilient. You know, it's interesting that we remember that the, actually the, the, the COVID impact on political rivalry inside the, uh, the regime is... Uh, is is opposite as I said before. It is causing the it's causing the different elements inside the, the the state to come together against that. So, for example, we see that the IRGC and the R army are very much uh, in a very good manner cooperating with the government. This is happening at the time that they they were they had a very uneasy times uh, a few months ago. And uh, on the other side, for example, you see that the, the on the social level uh, that uh, while few months ago in November and late and, and after that in January, after the Ukrainian aircraft was shut down by RGC, we had a huge social anger inside Iranian society against the, against the government. But uh, right now, after this COVID, uh, everyone is busy with the COVID. I mean, people are not, uh, are not going back to think about, okay, 300 people were killed in the aircraft. That, that short memory is a, a little bit erased and very much impacted by the crisis that at least 2,500 people have died until now uh, in, a, in a, a shorter than one month. So uh, this is helping the, the resiliency of the regime. And at the same time, there's another factor, the fact that, the, you know, during the emergency times, the people are become more, uh, more dependent on their government's help. You know, still government is seen as the only viable uh, player that can help and protect them in a crisis time. So this increases a bit in the short term the legitimacy of the Islamic Republic. What I want to say is that this crisis of uh, 
coronavirus, opposed to what the Trump administration is assuming, is very much making or increasing the resiliency of, of the Islamic Republic. And, and they are very opportunistically also using it. For example, they're making some propaganda, new propaganda against, against the U.S. that, okay, the U.S. was involved in a kind of a biological warfare against Iran. So picking up those fake news of the Chinese and, and make it so bold that, okay, there is a kind of a biological warfare. So create and add that uh, anti-American uh, sentiments. And at the same time, the continued U.S. sanction, uh, this is important, I think, if we, it links what I was saying at the beginning of my uh, talk with you, that Iranian society is, a, is, is not a, uh, is not overwhelmed with a negative view toward the U.S. But incidents like what we are seeing right now is very much impacting the long-term uh, picture because very much Iranian people are seeing the continuation of the sanction during the, the during the such an outbreak, and because you know that the American sanction is causing the hospitals and uh, and the health system, healthcare system not be able to uh, to acquire some of the medical needs that they want from the international market. So uh, the Iranians, the normal people, are seeing that as unacceptable, something uh, in, uh, I mean, unhuman. Inhuman, and that's why it, it is creating a negative view toward the U.S. So, all in all, the system is very much abusing these things to 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 orchestrate maybe in future a new offensive, more offensive approach toward toward U.S. So, if I want to conclude, I am seeing no real possibility of, uh, or as of now, uh, I hope that in the I mean uh, next weeks we will see some move toward a change of this pattern. But so far, we're seeing a pattern that both players are using the COVID-19, this coronavirus, as a, as a new tool. So they are adding to the escalation and not using it as an opportunity for de-escalation. Yeah, unfortunately, I agree with you. But the, the way that you sum that up was exactly the reason I wanted you to come on to the podcast, because um, I think in, gen- in the West in general, but especially in the United States, perspectives on Iran are kind of strange. They sort of think of Iran as irrational or as crazy or as run by these ayatollahs who do all these other things. And I think you and I very clearly disagree on some things, just like there are some things that the United States and Iran will disagree on no matter what. There are some interests that are opposed. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't understand each other's perspectives and understand each other's positions and then maybe use that to try and move the needle forward or at least try and to engage productively, especially in the context of a global pandemic like COVID-19, which doesn't care whether we're Iranian or American or this, that, or the other thing. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for giving us that food for thought for hopefully challenging some of our listeners to put aside their preconceptions and stop for a moment. And even if they disagree with what you say to reflect on, well, doesn't that sound rational? This is what an Iranian's perspective is. And maybe using that as a starting place uh, for hopefully reimagining U.S.-Iran relations. I don't want to get too ambitious, but I think it has to start somewhere and, and maybe our conversation can help that. You can find us on every major streaming platform under the name PerchPod. You can follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives. That's at P-E-R-C-H 
S-P-E-C-T-I-V-E-S. We love puns. Uh, you can also find us on LinkedIn under the name Perch Perspectives. To find out more information about Perch Perspectives or to sign up for our free newsletter or to view samples of our research and consulting work, you can visit our website at www.perchperspectives.com. Take good care and we'll see you out there.